Amen, church. Well, if you would go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we will be looking about 14 chapters through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. But I'm going to read for us verse 6 through verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Let's pray one more time. Father, we again just thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for Your Holy Spirit, which applies the Word to our lives, convicts us, and sanctifies us. And so we pray, Lord, for conviction, for transformation, that we would live lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask it all in His name. Amen. We're going to sort of pick up where we left off last week. Uh, we looked at the life of King Saul from 1 Samuel 15, and we saw how Saul had this debilitating tendency toward fearing man. And we saw that his controlling desire, his ultimate conviction in life, if you will, was to be honored not in the eyes of the Lord, but in the eyes of others. And it was not to obey the Lord, but it was to be praised by man. And this is in the context of a sermon series where we are studying the Old Testament, Old Testament narratives, uh, with a specific focus on common problems. And let me, let me just talk about this sermon series for a moment, because what we're not doing is we're not just picking random problems from the Old Testament and trying to argue that there's still problems today. Uh, that's just a given. What we're really aiming to do is asking the question of how the Bible treats the problems of life and how the Bible deals with these age-old problems that today we have largely psychologized are largely uh, dumbed down and reduced them down to physiological problems despite the fact that many of them have little or no evidence that they actually are physical in nature. And we're asking how the Bible addresses these problems. In other words, this series is a sermon series on the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is that the Bible tells us how to be saved tells us how to be right with God, but it also tells us how to live in a way that honors God and pleases Him, and it gives us everything we need to do that. 
when it comes to the moral issues of life, when it comes to justice and injustice, when it comes to sin, when it comes to honoring the Lord, the Bible gives us everything that we need. It is a sufficient resource. Now that does not mean that we discredit medical help. That does not mean that we discredit or don't welcome scientific advances. It doesn't mean that we discredit that there are real physical and psychological problems. We do this. We acknowledge these things. And we acknowledge that there are extremely complex issues and that the human makeup is very complex. And that our souls and our bodies work together in a mysterious way. And there are very complex issues where it seems that the body affects the soul such as schizophrenia, or there are struggles that begin in the soul that then work their way out and affect the body, such as PTSD or OCD or depression. The makeup of the human being is very complex, especially when you factor in the fall and sin and you factor in the way that we were raised and you factor in the assumptions and the worldview that we adopted, whether consciously or unconsciously, yet despite of all the complexities, despite not knowing everything that we can possibly know about the human person, we believe with a wholehearted conviction, despite the claims of modern humanism that say that this book has nothing to offer the modern man, we believe that the Bible has much to say about us. In fact, it has the only truly accurate thing to say about us. And the Bible addresses these age-old important questions such as who we are, who God is, what is wrong with us, and what the solution is. And it tells us how to respond to these questions to the glory of God. All of life, brothers and sisters, is in relation to God. And the problems of humanity ultimately flow from a broken relationship to God. And the problems of our heart, even in the lives of Christians, ultimately flow from not relating to God rightly. From not thinking the right thoughts about Him and about ourselves. From not desiring what He wants us to, to desire. For having affections for things that He doesn't want us to have affections for. Or for having more affection for something that shouldn't have that much of our heart's affection. And it tells us about the way that we behave and the way that we respond to life. No one, and we've said this before and we'll say it a million times, no one is neutral. Nothing is neutral. Everyone has a theology. Everyone has assumptions. Everyone has a worldview, and we all have commitments, and we have values, and we have desires, and we have goals that betray us. And when these are out of line with God's revelation of Himself, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, dysfunction and destruction are sure to follow. Yet, we believe that the Bible addresses this and gives us the solution and the Bible has come down to us in such a way that it addresses these issues oftentimes thematically. And not only does it address them didactically or in teaching, but it addresses them in narrative. Brothers and sisters, God's revelation 
by and large, is narrative. Much of it is in the literary genre of narrative. And so if we are going to know God rightly and know how to honor Him rightly, we need to be able to read biblical narratives. And so that's what we are seeking uh, to address in this sermon series. And so this morning, I want to again look at King Saul's life. And I want to show how oftentimes our problems are not isolated, but they blend together. And they oftentimes produce one another as they grow and get worse. Because we tend to isolate problems, right? We might say, you know, I have an anger problem. Or I struggle with laziness. Or I'm this, or I am that. Yet we often fail to realize that the that the sinful responses of our hearts are actually being driven by defective beliefs about God, corrupted desires, sinful actions. So we will see, Lord willing, that the life of King Saul will see that his jealousy of David actually drives his anger and his bitterness and his hatred for David. And we will see that he doesn't just have an anger problem, And that by refusing to repent of his anger and dealing with it biblically, his anger cultivates a deep-seated hatred for David. So that so much of his reign is spent wasted trying to kill him rather than leading the way God has called him to lead. Yet we will see that this jealousy and this anger is intertwined with a great fear in a great uh, belief that, that David is going to overthrow his kingdom and that he will no longer have the reign and the praise that he wants so badly. And because Saul has a sinful obsession with his own glory and with his own kingdom, there is this sinful lust for control that will lead him at the end of his life to actually consult demonic practices to get information about the future. And he ultimately will die a very tragic death by committing suicide. I I sat down and I just read through this narrative this week and and it is tragic. The life of King Saul is very sad. And it is very tragic. Uh, You just see him progressively self-destruct as the narrative progresses and as his years move on. From the time that David kills Goliath, to the end of his life, Saul's sinful responses just get more and more wicked and Saul ultimately becomes more and more unhuman. He becomes unhuman and he destroys himself because he will not humble himself before the Lord and repent and submit to God's will. So this is going to feel a little bit unusual because I'm going to just sort of survey uh, Saul's life and cover about 14 chapters. Uh, So be ready to flip uh, in your Bible and I'll drop down at various points and make applications and draw some things out for our lives. And so the first problem I want us to see from the life of King Saul is his jealousy. Saul is jealous from this text that we read that the women ascribe to David more than they ascribe to Saul. They give to David 10,000 and to Saul only thousands. And here's the thing, Saul could have fought Goliath. He should have fought Goliath. He's the king. But he didn't. David did. And David kills 
Goliath, and yet Saul is jealous for the glory that David is given by the people. And here's what I want to say to us. Jealousy is a window into what we value most. Jealousy gives us a look into our hearts and it shows us what we love the most. The Bible says that God is a jealous God and He is jealous for His own glory. He is jealous that people worship Him. Why? Because He's the greatest being in the universe. If He weren't jealous for that, He would be wrong. He would be in sin. God must be jealous for His own glory. And He calls us to be jealous for His glory. And we should be jealous for God's glory. We should be, we should be jealous that Jesus Christ be worshipped among every nation and tribe and tongue. We should be jealous that our children grow up in godly homes and godly churches and that their lives be marked by obedience. We should be jealous for one another's good, for one another's souls. We should be jealous when we come into this church on Sunday morning that, that the worship would conform to Christ's pattern in the New Testament. That we would constantly be pushing out what the culture says is cool and be conforming our worship to God's revelation. But so often, brothers and sisters, our jealousy shows us our sinful affections. Saul's desire was for the highest praise and the highest honor. And this gets into the issue of discontentment, doesn't it? Saul wasn't content with all he had, which was essentially everything. He was the king. He was the highest in Israel. He had everything he wanted, yet he was jealous because he didn't have the highest praise, which is what he really wanted. Brothers and sisters, sinful jealousy and discontentment are essentially accusations against God. Because what are we saying? We wouldn't say this with our mouths, but what are, what are our hearts saying? They're saying, God, in your sovereign dealing with my life, you haven't done me good. I, I, you've given me this house and I think I need that one. You've given me this amount of money, this job, this family, and I think my life would be better if you would have given me that. And it drives us to complain and it can lead us to have ought in our hearts toward the people who have the things that we really want. As it goes on to say, and Saul eyed David from that day on. And so we see Saul's jealousy and discontentment lead to a sinful anger and bitterness. Anger and bitterness. The Scriptures do speak of a righteous anger. Jesus' anger obviously was righteous. And the Bible shows us that sinful men, fallen humans, can actually produce a righteous indignation. When we see God's glory being belittled, it's, it's okay. It's, it's encouraged to be righteously angry. Or when we see the, the poor and the oppressed uh, being mistreated, when we see the innocent being killed, we should have a righteous anger. When we hear about one million babies a year being aborted in our nation legally, we should be angry about that. Not to repay evil for evil, but it should drive us to pray. It should drive us to political action. It should drive us to do ministries of mercy and to serve and love our communities. And it should drive us to preach and proclaim the Gospel. 
These things are a reality, yet when you consider our sin and our fallen nature, I think it's wise to assume that our anger rarely is righteous. Almost never. Because we usually don't get angry when God's glory is belittled. We get angry when we are belittled, don't we? That's why James wisely says to us in James 1.19 and 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so Saul is angry toward David because David gets more glory than Saul gets. And he's angry that the Lord has blessed everything that David does. And his anger is totally unwarranted. Because again, David killed Goliath. David has done nothing but good to Saul. He has fought his enemies. He has delivered the kingdom into his hand. Yet, Saul is angry. David trusts the Lord. Saul neglects to obey the Lord. David has done nothing but good to Saul. Yet Saul is angry. And his anger festers into a sour bitterness that torments Saul for the rest of his life and drives him to spend the rest of his life trying to kill David, trying to kill the Lord's anointed. And we see that he seeks to pin David to the wall. And as we move further into chapter 18, we see Saul demonstrate the ultimate form of hypocrisy. Uh, look at verse 20 and 20, 20 to 22. It says, Now Saul's daughter Michael, that's a, that's a female, Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. And listen, listen to the deception in these words in verse 22. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And David goes on to say essentially, look, I'm, I'm too poor, I'm nothing in Israel, I can't be the king's son-in-law. But look at what Saul says in verse 25. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. So essentially, Saul is saying, Look, I don't need a bride price, David. Just go get, a, go get vengeance on, on my enemies. Go kill a hundred Philistines. That's all, that's all I want for a bride price for my daughter. And yet, the narrator tells us what Saul's real motivation is. He goes on to say, now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. It's hypocrisy. And in chapter 19, Saul seeks again to pin David to the wall with his spear. And David escapes. So Saul sends men to his house where his daughter is living. And he puts men around the house to capture David so that Saul can kill him his daughter helps David get away, and Saul gets angry at her. Look what it says in verse 17, chapter 19. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And then in chapter 20, when Saul plots again to kill David at a feast this time, 
Jonathan, his own son, helps David escape the hand of Saul. And listen to what Saul says to his own son, Jonathan, in chapter 20, verse 30 to 33. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. It's amazing. It's amazing. Saul's anger and bitterness have so blinded him that he actually thinks he is a victim. He really believes that David is trying to kill him. He, he really believes that he is justified for trying to kill David. He believes David is in the wrong. And listen to one more time how sorry Saul feels for himself as he has continued to pursue David but has failed. I'm in chapter 22. Verses 7 to 8. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day? Saul resorts to weaponizing emotion to get his way because he thinks he's a victim. And he's turned everyone against him. And he believes that he's in the wrong. And so brothers and sisters, this type of language, when you hear it or when you say it, should cause a red flag to go up. We're manipulating. We're feeling sorry for ourselves. We, we believe that we're a victim. And we should strive to, to throw out that nobody loves me. Nobody cares. Look at, well, look at what I've done for all of you. And you guys don't love me. You don't feel sorry for me. It's not godly language. And we see here in chapter 22, Saul really hit rock bottom. Because now he's going to stretch out his hand against the Lord's priests. Verse 17 to 19. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of Yahweh. Just say that one more time. Turn and kill the priests of Yahweh. That's Saul's command. Because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. Listen, but the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of Yahweh. Then the king said to Doag, You turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And listen to this, verse 19. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Verse 19 sounds familiar, doesn't it? We saw last week in chapter 15 that God commanded Saul with that very same language to put the Amalekites to the ban. Everything, man, woman, infant, child, 
sheep, oxen, everything, and Saul would not do it. And he spared King Agag. And they spared the animals. He's slow to put the wicked Amalekites to the ban under the command of the Lord, yet here, because he's offended and he's angry, he justifies putting to the ban fully the city of the priests of Yahweh. Saul has cultivated his anger and bitterness and hatred for David to the point that he has become unhuman. And Saul is no longer just angry. Saul is an oppressor. Saul is a murderer. What we see in the life of Saul is how destructive ongoing anger and bitterness can be. These sins never just affect the one who is angry or bitter. They always affect other people. Always. You cannot be neutral toward bitterness and anger. And they likely and usually affect the people that the perpetrator is called to love most and to protect most. Saul should have protected the Levitical priest at any cost. Yet he destroys them. But here's what happened. As Saul's anger and bitterness grows and as he justifies his sinful actions, he views himself as a victim and actually he becomes more and more deceived. He becomes more and more given over to his sin. And he becomes more and more un- irrational. Unrepentant sin fosters deception. It fosters deception. Very prominent people have tried to be rational with Saul. His own son Jonathan and Ahimelech the priest. I mean, if Saul should have listened to anyone, it was these guys. And they're saying, look, David is doing good to you. He's not trying to kill you. What are you doing? Why are you thinking the way you are thinking? But Saul can't hear wisdom because he is deceived by his sin. And he is blinded. And he really thinks that David is trying to conspire to kill him and overthrow his kingdom. And Saul's deception is so great that he he commits again the remainder of his life to trying to kill King David and trying to kill the Lord's anointed. And what is really ironic is as the narrative progresses, David has multiple opportunities to kill David or to kill Saul, but he won't do it. And every time he says this, "I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed." David knows Saul is acting unjustly. He knows Saul is oppressing him. He knows Saul is evil and deserves to die, but he won't put it into his own hands to kill Saul because Saul is God's king. So he says, look, I'll trust the Lord to deal with Saul. I won't do it. I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. However, the narrative is clear that the Lord has left Saul and has actually come on to David. Chapter 16, 13, you don't have to go back there. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. 18.12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So the irony is that David won't kill the man who he calls the Lord's anointed even though the Lord had left him. And Saul seeks to destroy the Lord's anointed. He opposes the Lord's Anointed. This is what we see in Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed. That psalm is ultimately about Christ. But it's in, in its immediate context, it's in David's life and in his struggle to receive the throne and all the opposition that he receives. And you've got to believe that David had Saul in mind when he penned Psalm 2. Why do they do it? Why do the kings and the nations oppose God and His Christ? Because they're deceived by their sin. They're deceived by their idolatry. They're being irrational. If they were thinking clearly, they would bow their knee to the Son. They would kiss the Son, as the psalm says. They would be wise. They wouldn't rouse Him up to anger to be consumed. But they can't because they're deceived by their sin. And if Saul were wise, he would humble himself before the Lord and before David. He would confess his sins. He would seek to know the Lord's will and he would say, Lord, if Your will is for me to live the rest of my days as king, I will do that for Your glory and I will raise David up as the rightful heir of my throne. And if You want me to step back so that David has his kingdom, that's what I will do. But he doesn't. Because sin blinds us from the truth. Deception keeps us from thinking accurately about life. This is what I want to say to us. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about being proactive in our fight against sexual temptation. In the same way, we have to be proactive in our fight against deception. Before we come under the guise of deception over sin, resolve to put in your life barriers and practices that will keep you from being deceived. This is why communion with God and daily private devotion is so important, brothers and sisters. So important where we confess our sins to God and we keep a pure and healthy conscience before Him. Where we ask Him, like David in Psalm 139, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Show me if there's grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You know, people often say, I hear this a lot, you know, when I had my devotions, when I have my devotions, my day just seems to go so much better. And when I don't, I usually sin a lot and my day is not good. That's a little superstitious because there's nothing actually different about your day when you read your devotions or you don't. It's just that when you give yourself to communing with God, you're actually fulfilling the purpose you were created for. And you're, you're aligning yourself with God's will and His revelation and you're communing with Him so that now you're walking by the Spirit. Now you're keeping in step with the Spirit. And what does Paul say? When we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We're living in the way God designed us to live. Being in the context of a local church where Christian brothers and sisters can look at your life from the outside and objectively interpret your situation when we might be deceived by bitterness or hurt or anger or some emotion. They can speak into our lives and rebuke us or gently say, no brother, I think you're wrong here. I think you're wrong there, sister. And how many times has that happened where a few weeks later you look back and you say, they were right. I was deceived. I was wrong. And they were right. Dealing with conflict biblically. 
and quickly, not letting relational problems fester. So important. And and just seeking to daily keep our hearts pure before the Lord. You know, I've made it a habit over the years to just confess to the Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm prone to jealousy. I am prone to being deceived. I am prone to pride. I I am not wise so often. I see things wrongly. I judge wrongly. Keep me from deception. Keep my eyes clear. Saul's deception proves to be fatal. Not only for him, but for many others. Now I want to point something out that struck me this week as I was reading this narrative. You know, if we backed up and we just asked the question, you know, why is Saul ultimately doing all this? What, what is driving all of this at the end of the day? I think the narrative makes it very clear. It's fear. It's sinful fear. 18.12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. 18.18-19 But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So, so Saul was David's enemy continually. What, what is sinful fear? You know, there's a lot we could say, but ultimately it's a failure to rest fully in God. It's a failure to rest fully in God. And fear leads Saul to do some incredibly horrible things. Because he ultimately wants to protect his kingdom. And he sees it being threatened. He values his own glory so much that he becomes sinfully afraid of David because he perceives David to be a threat to his glory, to his praise, to his kingdom. And so he seeks to destroy David out of fear for David. What do you value so much that when it is threatened to be taken from you, you behave in irrational means and you are willing to sin to protect that thing? For some, it's a status, it's, a, it's praise, it's a kind of lifestyle. For others, it's their health or their safety. And this leads me to the last problem I want to talk about from Saul's life. Saul's sinful fear develops into a sinful obsession. Chapter 28, verses 3-4. to four. Three through eight. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunam, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, listen, he was greatly afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, Divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. So at this point, the Lord has fully rejected Saul 
the Philistines have come up against Saul and against Israel, and it says that his heart trembled greatly. It beated profusely. This is a paralyzing fear because Saul knows the Lord has left him, and he knows now David is gone. He knows his kingdom and his own life are in grave danger. And he seeks the Lord's will, but the Lord does not answer him. Saul has become so obsessed with maintaining his kingdom, ensuring his glory, destroying David, that now he has come to a point where the Philistines have come up to war against him and he doesn't know what to do. He's cashed all his checks and he has nothing left. So Saul decides to to commit a great act of abomination in the eyes of the Lord, and he seeks to know the future by consulting a medium to bring up Samuel from the dead. And seeking mediums and necromancers is totally forbidden in the law of the Lord. As a matter of fact, Leviticus 20.31 says, A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death, and they shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. And so Saul doesn't put them to death. He just puts them out of the land. At any rate, Saul decides to seek out a medium because he needs certainty. He wants someone to tell him what he's supposed to do that will keep him in his kingdom. That will, that will allow him to hold on to his glory. And I want to just say something about obsessive compulsion. What is commonly known as is OCD. You know, in all the counseling cases I've had, this issue has been by far the most difficult issue to deal with. Uh, once people develop a sinful obsession over something, it's like there are these all-consuming, unwanted, intrusive thoughts that just constantly shoot into the mind and consume. And there is this compulsive desire that says, I have to have absolute certainty. I need to know absolutely, and I will do whatever it takes to get that certainty. And so you see, you hear about people who will wash their hands a hundred times in a row. Why? Well, ultimately, they want to know, have I got all the germs off my hands? Because if I didn't, then maybe I'll touch someone and kill that person. And there's a fear that's driving that. You hear about people who check the locks on their doors a hundred times for fear that maybe they missed it and someone might break into their house that night. Or you hear about people who drive around a parking lot for an hour. These are real stories that drive around a parking lot for an hour. Maybe I hit someone and I don't know. I need to go back around and check to make sure. And I personally struggled with this years ago on a more religious front, I had developed an obsession over my sin. And I was always asking the question, did I sin? Have I wronged someone? Am I, am I in sin right now? And if I do, I need to confess it because if I don't, the Lord won't hear my prayers. And if He won't hear my prayers, then I'll be deceived. And then if I'm deceived, I'll live a life of destruction and I'll die and go to hell. And that tormented me. And it went on and on and on and on. These unwanted, intrusive thoughts shooting into the mind like darts. And I'll be honest, for a while it was paralyzing. 
And I would pray for long periods of time and confess my sins over and over and still leave not knowing whether God had confessed or had forgiven my sins. Because maybe I didn't pray the prayer right. Maybe I didn't mention all my sins. I wasn't trusting in the Word of God alone. I was trusting in my own work of confession. And it led me to do a lot of silly things and say a lot of silly things to people and make a lot of silly confessions to people because I needed certainty that God had forgiven me. And this really hits at the issue of assurance. You know, you'll hear people say, how do I know I'm saved? Well, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart. But that person may say, well, how do I know I've believed? How do I know my belief is real? How do I know I'm not trusting my belief? How do I know I've repented? And there's this ongoing circle of thoughts and questions. And ultimately, they always start with this. How do I know? How can I know? And it's very challenging to break through and help that person see accurately because there's such psychological harm that's been done. And so if you struggle with obsessive compulsions, brothers and sisters, whether it's something that seems trivial, like washing your hands, or whether you are struggling to trust the Word of God and bank your eternity on Christ, there is hope for this problem. And the underlying issue is the same. It's, it's a lust for certainty. It's a need to know everything. A demand to have a sort of omniscient, perfect knowledge that only God has. And He has not called you to have that knowledge. He has called you to trust in the One who does have that knowledge. And to rest in that. To rest in His Word. It is so freeing to rest in the Word of God alone. To rest in the Word of God is the biblical antidote to obsessive compulsion. And sadly, Saul fails to see this. He seeks a medium to bring up Samuel from the dead. And what is one of the stranger passages in all of the Bible? Samuel comes up and again rebukes Saul, doubles down and says, the Lord has rejected you, Saul. And he's given the kingdom to David. The Lord's message through Samuel has not changed at all since chapter 15. And Saul totally at the end of himself goes into war, gets wounded, and ultimately ends up falling on his own sword. And this is the last section we'll read. 31, 3-7. says, The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. Here at the end of Saul's life, what he still cares about most is how he's going to be treated. He still cares ultimately about himself. And so he kills himself. Saul's life is tragic. 
And while there is much for us to learn from this narrative about sinful emotions and actions, if we stop here, it will only lead us to despair. Because here's the sober reality. We're cut from the same cloth that Saul is cut from. We are born into Adam. We are born into sin just like Saul was. Saul's condition is the human condition. Fear of man. Jealousy. Anger. Hatred. Bitterness. Murder. Obsession. Destruction. Opposition to God's anointed king. And if we're all honest, we're a lot more like Saul than we would like to admit. And we are capable of committing and guilty of committing many of these same sins that Saul committed. And so I want to close by encouraging us to look at this narrative with a Christocentric lens. Because ultimately the story of David's rejection and ultimate triumph is a picture of the life and the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Because in our own flesh, we have no hope of being saved. Not even by God's good and moral and holy law do we have hope that we can be saved. But God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of of the flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 3-4 The God-man Jesus Christ entered into this broken world. Entered into our fallen situation. And as the new and better David, He endured oppression. He endured rejection. He endured shame. And yes, He endured and suffered under the wrath of God for our sins. For our sake. For our sake. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be called the righteousness of God. And all of those psalms that David penned from those caves and those strongholds about his enemies oppressing him, such as Psalm 22 where he says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. These are ultimately fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. The narrative of Saul's rejection of David is a dress rehearsal for the world's rejection of Jesus Christ. And Saul's rejection of the Lord's anointed is a dress rehearsal for how the religious leaders of Jesus' day who should have seen His glory should have bowed and worshipped Him because of their sin were blind. And they crucified Him in ignorance and nailed Him to a cross. And through that, through that death, He has triumphed over sin and over death and over our enemies. And so let the tragic life of Saul drive you to the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Let let the evil King Saul drive you to the exalted King, Jesus Christ. Amen? And if you are a believer, 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been baptized and you've entered into a local church where you uh, fellowship and serve and you could take the Lord's Supper at that church, let it drive you to this table where Christ has welcomed us to come and commune with Him. And if not, we would ask you just to remain in your seat. Take a few moments to pray. Uh, think through these things. Do not become introspective, but look to the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. Worship Him. And when you're ready, come get the elements and return to your seat. We'll take it together. Father in Heaven, thank You. Thank You for sending Christ. Lord, what we see from Saul's life is that we are capable of utter destruction. And we have no hope apart from Your Son. And so I pray that that reality would cause us, Lord, to come to You, to worship You, to latch on to You, and to allow You to fully save us. And I pray that we would rest in You fully. So I thank You, Lord. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.